2: Welcome to Studying Media Critically, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm your host, Gummo Clare, and today I'm speaking with Simideli Dosekun, who's Assistant Professor in the Department of Media and Communications at the London School of Economics. We're going to be talking about her book, Fashioning Post-Feminism, Spectacular Femininity and Transnational Culture, published in 2020. Welcome to the show, Simi.
1: Thank you. Thank you so
2: much for having me. Um, so to start with I wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about your academic and professional background
1: okay Uh, well let me say I uh, yeah so I I have a master's in gender studies which I did at the University of Cape Town um, in South Africa and then after that I worked I, I come from Nigeria so after finishing my master's I worked for four years in publishing in Nigeria I mean I knew that I wanted to do a PhD I'd always had that ambition since I went to university but I um I moved back to Nigeria and essentially kind of got caught up in it. to Lagos, got caught up in life there, and I started working in publishing. And then I eventually decided to leave and, you know, come and do the PhD. Um, Sorry, the reason why I'm saying this is that, okay, it's not quite answering your question. But anyway, in the years I lived in Nigeria, what eventually became the book, uh, which initially began as my PhD research, you know, the, the origins of the project uh, were in those years, so the four years that I worked in Nigeria between my master's and my PhD. Anyway, I eventually came, so my master's was in gender studies, um, and then I did a PhD in gender and cultural studies at King's College, London. Uh, I was in the Department of um, Culture and Creative Industries. No, Culture, Media and Creative, yeah, there's an M in there, (laughs) Culture, Media and Creative Industries, Um, in gender. So, as I said, my PhD was Gender and Cultural Studies. And then since when I finished my PhD in 2015, uh, I've been working uh, in academia ever since. um, Now at the London School of Economics, but I began as a fellow at the LSE, and then I worked at Sussex for three years as a lecturer in Media and Cultural Studies.
2: So, before we turn to some of the kind of findings and arguments in the book itself... Um, I wanted to ask you, yeah, what, what do you to this subject matter?
1: Yeah, okay. So as I said, I, um, in the years that I was living in Nigeria, so this was between 2007 and 2011, um, I essentially sort of began to feel and to sort of see and observe around me that there was an increasingly, um, I mean, I think there's a very strong culture of dress, dressing up anyway in in nigeria in general but maybe in lagos in particular and a certain kind of culture of spectacularity certainly a culture of display of material wealth um in again in, in nigeria in general but arguably in lagos you know all the more um so in those years that i was living there i increasingly felt that i was seeing around me young women who were dressing very spectacularly as i said it wasn't sort of radically it, it was aligned with the general sort of culture of the place. But the dress that I was seeing in particular, you know, it was a sort of style of dress that was, I characterize it in the book as spectacular, you know, this sort of immaculate femininity very, and also very sort of hyper, very normatively feminine. So, you know, characterized by elements such as, um, you know, sort of flawless makeup, long hair extensions, very high heels, um, uh, false eyelashes, false nails, and so on. And I, I mean, I say in the book, and also I said it in my PhD. But part of how I came to see this style, I mean, again, it was I saw it around me. But part of how I also sort of came to see that there was something interesting going on, and perhaps something to be sort of said and maybe studied, was also by being seen to not inhabit the style myself by other people. Um, you know, so people sort of commenting on my own appearance, which was very kind of plain by by comparison. And actually, in fact really one of the very very kind of early starting points of this is that when i first moved back to nigeria before i started working in publishing i was i worked for a publishing house before i started working for that particular company i was working as a freelance editor copy editor for a women's for glossy women's magazine sort of fashion and lifestyle magazine so i mean i was freelance i didn't necessarily go in but sometimes i would go into the office and very much would then sort of see other again young women, pretty much my age, broadly in the same kind of demographic, social demographic, very dressed up in the office. And I remember sort of going to the office in my sort of shabby jeans and sneakers, you know, and just you know it was all just very glamorized basically. And I was clearly not, I didn't, I didn't fit in in that respect. Um, and I remember even the editor of that magazine. One day basically saying to me, Oh, you really don't dress up, you know, sort of commenting on my lack of spectacularity. So so again, those were the sort of starting points of the project. Um, and so I was I was really sort of interested in the question of who's the woman in the style, or in the sense of what kind of what kind of subject is she? And I was very much interested in exploring that question from the point of view of the woman or women themselves, as opposed to hearing what other people had to say, of which I you know, I got a lot of unsolicited uh, commentary and analysis and so on by other people, by family and friends, when I began doing this project about what this style was about, what the women were about, and so on. But I wasn't interested in that perspective. I, as I said, I was interested in the self-accounting of, of the women. Um, so yeah, it was my PhD. And then I eventually sort of turned it into a book both to sort of get it out there, but I suppose also just as necessity in terms of my career, in terms of, you know, actually writing it as a book. But hopefully, um, you know, the book and the content is of interest.
2: Well, absolutely. I mean, it was certainly of interest of me. I, I wanted to ask about the kind of method and your research subjects, because I, I think that's, that's really interesting and important. Um, as you already mentioned, you know, there's this great deal of reflexivity within the book both amongst your subjects but you you also interrogate your own position um Mm. in relation to them as well and i think that in a way that's really really fruitful so could you provide a bit of um background about the subject positions of these women who you interviewed and how you decided on them in particular and how you went about approaching them Mm,
1: okay yeah yeah so basically uh so the project ended up focusing on So young women, which I, you know, I think I sort of use eighteen to thirty-five. Uh, so young, eighteen to thirty-five-year-old women in Lagos, who um, broadly belong to—I mean, I can't remember exactly how, how I phrase it in the book—but basically, you know, quite a privileged socioeconomic uh, class and demographic. And I often get asked why I focus on that demographic in particular, um, and I would say, really. I think initially the reason why was because that was where I was seeing the style, you know, so again, it was in certain kind of social environments that I was in myself where I felt I was seeing it around me. But one thing certainly that has been said to me and I, you know, I agree with it very much and I see it myself in Lagos, is that um, it became increasingly clear to me later, but I was even when I was doing the field works, so I did the field work in 2013. Um, so by already by 2013, less so, in 2010, 2011, when I was sort of pitching, doing the, you know, doing the research proposal, I could see that that particular kind of style I was looking at was clearly not limited to that, you know, elite or sort of privileged uh, demographic of women that I had initiated, that I planned to and did eventually focus on. You know, I could see the same style broadly across Lagos. But I, so, I, as I said, I often get asked why I focus only on those kinds of only on privileged women and i as i say it's because for me that was where i saw it first and it was only later that it became apparent and I mean, it's quite obvious in retrospect that of course it wouldn't be limited to that demographic but one thing that i also say which is that even as i could see the same kind of elements of the style across different social kind of groups in lagos i also and I, i mean again this is not surprising but it also sort of became was obvious to me or like visible to me that that something about the degree of spectacularity perhaps or the degree of sheen and so on was not necessarily equal, which again, you know, it wouldn't necessarily be. So, so what I saw is that, or what I would argue is that the women I focused on just by virtue of their class position, they really kind of, they were almost like the most kind of glossy of, of the different uh, groups of women who might wear this style. The other thing is, you know, some of the women in my project are celebrities, not many, but a couple uh, Nigerian celebrities in different ways. Um, and, uh, you know, they're in different industries and so on, including Nollywood. And so the other thing for me was that even as this particular kind of grouping of women that I focus on are by no means representative uh, in the Nigerian environment, I, I sort of argue that they're also, well, not also, but they're nonetheless among the most visible in terms of, uh, certainly in terms of media. You know, they're, they're the kind, including literally some of my participants, are literally the ones who you see, Um in nigerian media on magazine covers on billboards and so on i mean again not 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 all of them not many but some so that was another kind of reason for me to kind of focus on on that group that yes they're not representative but there's something about how they're positioned in nigerian society and in nigerian media that that makes that they're positioned as kind of aspirational figures i would argue so so that was the demographic and very much sort of focus on lagos Um, in terms of ethnicity, I don't really talk about ethnicity in the book, but the you know Lagos is a multi-ethnic Nigerian city anyway, so you know there was ethnic diversity in the in the sample. Although I don't really talk about it. One thing actually, there's I I didn't really also think about religion. I think there were one or two women. There were one or two Muslim women in the song. Were there? I'm not even sure actually. But yeah, I mean, overwhelmingly they were Christian actually, which you know wouldn't necessarily even though Lagos is in the South, you know, there is also a, a Muslim population in Lagos. I mean, maybe that's a bit of an omission on my part to not thought about being a bit more deliberate, maybe about having religious diversity within the sample. Um, but yeah, so that's who the women were broadly. So as I said, young, young, educated, upwardly mobile. Um, overwhelmingly, they were career women. I mean, there were one or two who were still in university, but they were, you know, the others were university graduates and they were working in different ways. And... Um, So, yeah, a a very privileged uh, sample or demographic overall.
2: And I wondered if you could talk a bit about your use of post-feminism as an analytical frame here. Mm. So what does this term mean kind of in general? And how are you modifying or problematizing scholarship on post-feminism in your book? Uh, What does it mean when applied in the context of Nigerian society specifically?
1: Yes. Okay, Um, so post-feminism is a concept, I mean, in terms of how it's sort of is developed in the in feminist media and cultural studies and certainly at the time I began this project um, well th- there are different kind of understandings and uses of the concept but the particular use that I align with um, is supposed feminism is a concept that refers to um, a popular sort of media and cultural sensibility and formation um, that that sort of tells women and you know I argue, I argue sells to women the idea that feminism is over or that they are beyond, you know, post in the sense of beyond or past or no longer in need of feminism. Um, so post-feminism is, you know, so the book is the book is a feminist study and ultimately critique of, of, of this sort of culture of post-feminism and this kind of promise of post-feminism. So it's not a post-feminist book itself, but again, it's a, post-feminism is the object of analysis. Um, so when I came to do this project, you know, I, I actually, so again, one of the starting points, it was when I was there in Lagos sort of seeing this thing around me, when I started working on the research proposal, trying to sort of trying to think about how I was going to frame this project and what it could be and so on. I came across the literature on post-feminism and it very much resonated with me. It, it very much what I read in the literature sounded like very much what I thought I was seeing on the ground in Lagos. So that's how I also sort of came to work with the concept of post-feminism. It, it seemed at least from the outset and from the surface, it seemed to sort of fit or resonate with what I was seeing. I mean, this is again before I'd actually done the research. But when I then did the research, I mean, so I mean, this comes back a bit to your question about methodology. Um, you know, as I said already, the project was very much about the women's self-accounting. So, so part of what I was trying to do. So even though I even though I came to the field with an idea of feminism as being a relevant concept, I wasn't trying to impose it because I was very much, in, again, interested in the question of what did the women have to say for themselves? What, what kind of femininity and feminine subjectivity were they performing and fashioning and so on? So I had an idea that it was, that post-feminism would be relevant, but I wasn't necessarily, I wasn't wedded to that because I was wanting to hear, you know, from just hear what the data would be in the data from the women themselves. Um, But then what I found and what I argue is, you know, I still sort of came back to post-feminism because I argue or I believe I heard or, you know, my kind of interpretation of what I heard or analysis of what I heard is that the women were very much kind of taking up post-feminist terms and discourses to speak of and to account for themselves and to differentiate themselves from other women uh, in their in their immediate environment, including you know their friends, family members and so on. Um so the concept in general, but in terms of how I apply it in the Nigerian context and you know to my particular research participants, um, you know, it's for me it was very much this idea, what I what I argued that I heard from the women was this idea, again, this idea just of being past feminism, but feminism was actually unspoken. So it wasn't even, you know, it's not even an explicit kind of self Positioning or distancing of oneself from feminism, but uh, you know there was very much a sort of happy and celebratory and upbeat, can-do type um, mentality and sensibility that I that the women expressed, uh, in which they were sort of they sort of positioned themselves as essentially beyond gender politics and beyond uh, gender power relations. You know, so this this sort of a very individualist as well idea of like I can do anything I want to do. And I can be anything I want to be. And the idea that is very much kind of, again, individualist, it's about, it's about having the right disposition, it's about having the right technologies, in this case, the right kind of fashion and beauty technologies and know how and so on. So that's that's how I work with the concept in the book is that, you know, post feminism as a kind of distancing of, of the need for feminism. And part of what I try to do in the book, you know, so on the one hand, I recognize that the concept of post feminism. As a feminist concept um, it comes out obviously of a very particular you know western feminist kind of history and uh timeline and so on which doesn't you know I, I by no means does that neatly um or even possibly at all apply to the to a context like nigeria so you know for me the point is not to sort of say that nigeria i mean obviously nigeria doesn't have the same feminist history as the west for example Um, But I argue that the concept of post-feminism and above, well, the concept, but also the culture and the sensibility and the mood and the logic that it, that that travels and that has uh, purchase elsewhere, not in exactly the same ways as in the West or anywhere else, but, you know, in ways that kind of make a certain kind of local sense. And part of the local sense that I argue in you know in the book and in terms of my research participants, it's, it also still comes back to class. But there was, but again, it was very unspoken and it was very taken for granted and implicit in the interviews that you know again these are highly highly privileged women who have a lot of opportunities in terms of careers, education, and so on. So part of their, I argue part of their distancing of from gender politics or the need for something like empowerment was through a kind of unspoken. Yeah, this is, you know, the unspoken kind of displacing of the need for fem- for empowerment. I wouldn't even call it feminism per se, but women's empowerment onto other, again, this idea of other kinds of women. You know, so not me as a young, educated, upwardly mobile, fabulous, fashionable woman, but rather other kinds of women. My friends, but also kind of like women at the grassroots, you know, that kind of logic, um, so, yeah, it's so a part of how I applied post-feminism in the Nigerian context, as I said, is through thinking about the class politics and the class relations and also thinking about how women's empowerment in that context, the, you know, just even the notion of women's empowerment is very much tied up with development and with, um, again, against kind of grassroots, the woman at the grassroots, the rural woman, the woman who lives in poverty and so on, uh, which was precisely not the type of women in my project, uh, both literally socially materially but also in their own kind of self self uh accounting and self-estimation and so
2: on yeah i mean and i think that the development angle you, you really astutely show the way that this this particular post-feminism is also tightly bound up with neoliberal and other feminisms as well i think and i, I find that really really fascinating it's a, a really interesting theme that runs throughout the book and I think particularly in the second chapter is is this huge amount of effort, expenditure and sometimes physical pain that arose from the beauty practices of your interviewees. So could you talk a little bit about some of the financial, bodily and other costs that these women shouldered in attaining their kind of desired look?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I argue, as heard from the women, that first of all, the style is literally expensive. Um, although, as I said earlier, I mean, presumably, you know, there are degrees of expense that one could kind of... Um, associate with the style, you know, it could be done more cheaply. But in particular, from the women whom I interviewed, again, with the recognition that these women are very privileged, I would say, you know, I say in the book, they're privileged by local standards, but I think also by global standards, you know, so it's not, it's not even just about the kind of degree of poverty in Nigeria, more more generally, they're privileged, you know, they're women who, not all of them, but some You know, they sort of wear designer clothes, designer handbags and so on, you know, so expensive stuff. Um, But then also in particular, in talking about their hair extensions, that was another particular sort of element of the style that was quite as as they reported it to me, you know, it was quite expensive. So, for example, I think I say that the most expensive, uh, they they spoke of wearing human hair as opposed to well, so-called human hair as opposed to synthetic um, and you know, human hair is very expensive, basically, at least at the time, this is almost 10 years ago. So, you know, they're talking about hair that's worth about 1500 US dollars for a head of hair, although the hair is reusable. So, you know, I guess it has a certain kind of lifespan. Um, so yeah, so it's expensive, to, but then also, so, so the stuff is expensive, but also all the kind of labor, both the labor, they go, they expend themselves, but also, you know, paying other people for the labor. Um, so for example, going to the hair salon a lot, um, using professional makeup artists uh, and things like that, right? To, to kind of, to apply the style, to maintain the style, to refresh the style and so on and so forth. In addition to that, and I mean, I must say for me, I think this was one of the most surprising findings that I just didn't expect. Again, in with the benefit of hindsight, you know, it seems quite obvious, but I think also because I don't engage in any such beauty practice myself, I guess I just had no idea, but I was So one of the most surprising findings for me was the women talking about the physical, um, the physical cost uh, or expense of the style. So in terms of, I mean, so on the one hand, something like, okay, wearing high heels, that's painful. Okay, fine. I guess maybe I, you know, that's sort of obvious. I mean, maybe I can, to some extent can relate with that, but things like, um, You know, the the cost and the risk of wearing hair extensions repeatedly, what that does potentially does to your own hair, that it can be damaging. Likewise, uh, false eyelashes, likewise false nails. So this idea that, you know, putting on all these kind of beauty technologies and accoutrement that they potentially kind of... um, deplete or damage one's body so one has to sort of manage that risk make sure you don't do it too much make sure you don't keep the thing in too long so that it's not again damaging your hair or whatever it might be um also managing but then also the kind of what i argue i frame as a kind of psychic risk you know which again was very surprising to me i didn't expect this at all to hear the women talking about that there's a certain risk that if you do if you do this beauty this style too much that you can you risk um, coming to misrecognize yourself as it were, or to kind of lose yourself in the in the beauty practice and in the final look that, you know, you almost kind of forget what you sort of look like normally, quote unquote, normally, such that you come to misrecognize yourself. Um, so that was a very, for me, was a very interesting finding and one that I certainly didn't expect. And I mean, I remember there was a particular woman who said, she said, you know, when I don't wear my false eyelashes, when I look in the mirror, I think that I, something is wrong with me. And I, you know, the last, she sort of said, I asked myself like, what's wrong? Are you sick? You know, it's almost like, and then she sort of said, you know, coming to realize that it's because she had gotten, or she increasingly becomes so used to how she looks with the lashes that when they're off, she thinks she looks, she looks off basically or sick or, you know, not good. So, so they talked about managing, managing that, that risk.
2: Yeah, I wanted to come back to the managing risk thing in, in a bit because there's, there's so much interesting stuff there. But I think something that you you kind of talked about there that and that comes out throughout the book really is this is the impossibility of a lot, so much of it, you know, of, of balancing between um, uh, beauty practices which makes one feel like oneself without the uh, – th- there's also a sense of, of too much, you know, of overdoing the beauty practices um, and this – Seeming impossibility between uh, artifice and being and feeling oneself, of still constantly being framed as a kind of empowered um, consumer choice, and I wonder if the, you could talk a bit about the idea of yeah consumer choice as empowerment as a theme that comes through in a lot of the interviews.
1: Yeah, I mean, so so I argue that very strongly. I mean, <laughs> there were there were some interviews that I think I use some of the quotes in the book where. What the women were saying—it sounded almost like a, it sounded like almost like an advert for the beauty product. You know, it's like, oh, don't feel good about your own hair. Here's this product. You use this thing, and you'll feel beautiful and amazing. You know, but at the same time, oh, exactly as you said, don't overdo it. Don't take it too far. You know, both because of some of the risks that I've just spoken about—the risk to oneself, of you know, the physical damage, the psychic damage, and so on—but then there's also the risk the women spoke of of being judged by other people. I mean, I. I guess that's a constant risk anyway for all of us, but maybe for women in particular. But there was something, you know, they spoke about this idea of like if you do it too much or if you take it too far, then then, you know, that, that there's a fine line between sort of being beautiful and beautified and feeling good about oneself and self-empowering through those kinds of practices. And then, you know, again, this fine fine invisible in my view, ever moving line between then crossing over to where you're then sort of seen as or judged as superficial and shallow and you know silly and so on and so forth. Um, so, yeah, you know, they, it was very much the women very much um, cast their practices as just choice, just choice, just fashion, just play, um, just just something that they were able to sort of freely kind of exercise or freely freely pursue not that deep, not that serious and so on, but then in the same breath or in the next sort of move or next few sentences in the interview, they would then be talking about the kind of, well, different things. So the risks of not pursuing the style, but also the the kind of the the personal costs of not pursuing the style in terms of, you know, so if the style sort of promises a sense of self-confidence and a sense of power and so on, then even as as it's being cast as just choice not that serious and so on the flip side of that is that if you don't do it or when you don't do it that you know not feeling so good about oneself but then also i mean so this is you know one of the many kind of contradictions in the interviews when what the women said also so on the one hand yes just choice is just for me i just like it it's just who i am and then oh that one time i didn't do that thing my friend said what's wrong with you why don't you you know, why you look bad or why haven't you done your hair or don't you want to look pretty today or why didn't you fix your nails or whatever it is. So, you know, the kind of the policing and the disciplining um, by other women as they reported it. And then also, interestingly enough, some of them also spoke of being the discipliners themselves of other women, right? So sort of... Correcting other women's beauty practices, uh, quote-unquote educating other women or enlightening other women about the beauty practices, giving them the tools, giving them the know-how and so on, so that they too could then exercise this quote-unquote choice, right, to sort of to pursue the practice and to gain the benefits, which again are sort of the sense of of, um, empowerment and confidence. And just to say as well, you know, As I said already, I don't do any of these practices uh, myself. And that also, not so much, but in some interviews, it became a bit of a topic of conversation, including, you know, me being, or the women, some of the women kind of either kind of commenting on my own lack of, my own kind of evident lack of engagement, particularly with makeup, let's say, but then also in some cases, actually being advised to sort certain things out. (laughs) <laughs> myself and my own appearance, you know. So, for instance, my my nails. For instance, you know that ah, my nails were not in a good state. I should maybe think about getting them fixed, and so on. Um, so, yeah, choice. I think I call it. What do I call it in the book? Um, can't remember. But basically, this idea of a sort of compelled choice, as it were, or a very a very a, a very limited choice, and in which one almost doesn't have the choice to not exercise the
2: choice as it were i suppose we've already touched on it there with the discussion of the centrality of empowerment to how these practices were framed but i suppose an obvious question here is who or what did your interviewees say they were fashioning themselves for because i guess a striking feature throughout the book is that dressing for the attention of of men uh, or a potential romantic or sexual partner seems really not to be a primary motivation yeah
1: Yeah. I mean, so throughout, very, very strongly, the women said, it's just for me. It's just for me. It's just, I just like it. I feel good about myself when I dress this way. I don't feel good about myself when I'm not dressed this way. I like to see myself look a certain way in the mirror and so on. So it was very, there was very much a very strong emphasis on the idea that it's not about other people. It's not about what other people think. Certainly not about men. You know, I, all of them, I would say unequivocally uh, rejected any suggestion that it would be that it is about men. And I mean, I, I imagine that the reason, one of the reasons why, is probably because they often may hear that kind of thing, or you know, that there's a certain sort of common sense interpretation that ah, oh, if a woman, if a heterosexual woman, or in the Nigerian context, presumably everybody's assumed to be heterosexual anyway, but you know, so that if you, if a woman beautifies herself. A young woman, a young single unmarried woman. What else could it be, right? That other than that, she wants male attention. So the women all rejected any such idea. I mean, some of them said it's not not that they, not that they don't welcome male attention if it comes, but that that's not the drive, that's not the purpose, and that it's and it's also not about your friends and so on. It's about wanting to feel a certain way about oneself. So they said that very much. But as I said, at the same time, they also, in the course of the discussion would then sort of reveal the, the policing, the comments and so on, the interventions by other women on their appearances when they were deemed sort of deficient in one way or another. Um, but, I, but I argue in the book, and I often say this when I speak, because people often ask me this question, uh, in particular students, when I talk about the project, you know, there's often this kind of question about, ah, oh, so were the women ultimately sort of fooling themselves you know, so on the, or lying, you know, lying to you that they say they do it for themselves, but actually they don't. You know, they do it for other people. And I suppose my response is that I think it's a false binary anyway. You know, so I, you know, the idea that is it to is, be engaged in certain practices for ourselves or for others. It's like, well, those two things are so constitutively entangled anyway. Um, and I think particularly around women's women and in particular heterosexual women's appearance. That you know, arguably, a, se- a certain sense of self for a woman is also a sense of appearing or how she appears. So that you know, I, so I don't, I, I certainly don't try to make an argument that the women were, you know, fooling themselves or lying, attempting to lie to me or anything like that. In making that claim, my interest analytically, my interest is more in what is speakable than what is desirable, and what kind of subject position is claimed, whether or not it's true is not really the point for me analytically and even politically, but it's more, again, what is the, almost what is the vision of self and what is the desirable self as as represented in the women's talk? And the answer is an independent, self-pleasing, self-financing, self-propelling type or subject, I argue. This episode
0: is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that completely comes tr- through and. There's never any kind of suggestion of, you know, like a kind of false consciousness or whatever. And I think one thing that's really, really apparent, actually, is the in, intense reflexivity of all of the participants, you know, who, again, the, the real sophistication with which they engage with your questions about about beauty, about who they're doing it for. I think that's really, really clear. Um, <clears throat> One one theme that comes throughout and that you use is the idea of the cruelty of post-feminist beauty's promise of confidence and empowerment, and also a kind of pervasive sense of melancholy in many of your interviews. Could you expand on this a bit? The kind of cruelty and melancholy.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So I mean, my argument about cruelty is, I mean, on the one hand, yes, about post or the immediate sort of argument is about the post-feminist sort of beauty practice, but more generally, it's actually about post-feminism itself or, you know, post-feminism more broadly. So, so my argument then, I mean, obviously I'm drawing on Lauren her, her concept of cruel optimism, you know, so it's the idea that as subjects that we might become invested in things that promise promise a lot or promise happiness or, you know, promise all kinds of great things, but that actually, um, not only do they disappoint, but that they are actually detrimental, right? And so there's something about the notion of cruel optimism is the idea that one keeps coming back to the things that, again, on the one hand, hold all this promise or make all these promises. And I mean, if you want to think about consumer culture and, and you know, the kind of interpolation, how consumer culture sort of works and certainly advertising, you know, there's a sort of interpolation to the would-be consumer to say, again, this idea of, hey, like, need this thing? Like, buy this product. It's going to solve all your problems or at least all your hair problems or all your beauty, whatever it is. Um, but that the thing itself ends up, um, again, not, not only failing to live up to its promises, but actually having a kind of negative... Um, effects actually, right? Even, But at the same time, even as a subject, you still kind of become almost kind of hooked, hooked on the product, as it were. And some of the women did actually, again, not many, but some did actually use, I think it was maybe two, they did actually use the word or the language of addiction, actually. So the idea that, you know, that you become addicted to, one of them talked about being addicted. I, I don't think she was referring to herself, but she said, oh, you know, some women, but yeah, she said, you know, when you wear a weave a lot, you become addicted to the weave, right? And again, that thing of like, that you, you can't, who am I if I don't have this thing? And not not just who am I in terms of what do I look like, but again, a certain sort of sense of self that it gets wrapped up with this commodity or this technology. Um, so yeah, so the argument about the cruelty of, as I said, is about the beauty practice, but more generally. So if first feminism is a cultural Address and, and promise to women, but I, I I sort of say try to argue very clearly in the book, it's to certain kinds of women. By no means is this a kind of universalized kind of address, because part of the material conditions for post feminism or for for a woman to I would argue for a woman to sort of hear the interpolation of post feminism and say oh yeah that sounds like me or that could be me, you know, is having a certain kind of material. Material basis, you know, edu- again, education, disposable income, and so on and so forth, right? A certain kind of cosmopolitan mentality and lifestyle. Um, but so, for me, the argument about post feminism as cruel is, is it, again, it's this thing of telling women, oh, you're post feminism, oh, yeah, that's done and dusted. We don't need that anymore. Or you don't need that anymore. You're not the type who needs it. Yeah, there's other women elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, they still need it, perhaps, right? Even as, again, the material and cultural um, conditions that, in my view, demand feminism or necessitate feminism are still very much with us, right? If, if not even sort of resurgent and re, re-entrenched. So that, for me, is the kind of the argument about the cruelty of it, that it, again, sort of seductive, glossy promise that we can do it all, we can have it all, but actually, no, we can't, right? Because, this, again, the same kind of violent conditions persist for women, even for privileged women, you know,
2: materially privileged women. And, and I, I suppose another part of the that seductive and glossy it embraces also about the kind of um, negation of the idea of conflict as a necessity. And I think you come back to Sarah Ahmed quite a lot throughout with about the idea of the necessity of being a killjoy and how that seems to be absent in a kind of post-feminist um, approach to, to beauty. Um
1: so I realized I didn't actually comment on melancholy that was the other part of your initial question but yeah so yeah so that no 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 sadness please no tears no unhappiness girls because you could have it all you could be it all right so no, no need for no need for conflict, no need for politics no need for critique um and so on and so you know in terms of melancholy what I argue I argue that there was that there was an often if not even maybe throughout it just like again an under an undertone an underpinning of melancholy, a certain sort of wish that things could be otherwise. So this idea that like, I feel so good, I feel so empowered when I do this beauty practice and it's all great and it's all happy, but under, underpinning that is a certain like, God, why do I have to even do this thing in the first place, right? And I mean, that for me is part of my kind of critique. I know it's certainly not a critique of the women, but again, of post-feminism and the glossy promise and so on. You know, I argue that it's an, post-feminism offers an invitation to women to basically get along with patriarchy, make friends with patriarchy because that's kind of easier and you can, be, you can find moments or glimmers of happiness within that rather than, you know, as you said to to and Sarah Ahmed, rather than being the killjoy and pointing out all the problems and the critique and being angry and being sad and so on. But, you know, my argument and my view, of course, is that the conditions demand anger and sadness, actually, rather than, the, again, that sort of happy, glossing over of problems and particularly because it's also done in a very individualist way, you know? So it's just like, I, I'm okay. I do these things and I feel good about myself, even though on the one hand, I sort of wish I didn't really have to, but I do it anyway. Um, But then also that it's exhausting. It's expensive. It's, you know, one thing I didn't say about the, the cost of it is also the, is the reiteration, you know, the, there was one woman who spoke about her makeup practice I mean, there was one woman who said she gets up at 5 a.m. Okay, fine, Lagos, is there's a lot of traffic in Lagos. People get up very early anyway to get ready for work. But you know this thing of waking up at 5 a.m. so you can start doing your face because it takes an hour or it takes 45 minutes. You know, it's a lot of labor. And then when you come home in the night, you've got to take it off. And then you get up the next morning and you start again. Yeah, it's exhausting. Even for me as the interviewer, I felt exhausted hearing it, actually.
2: The the, the sheer amount of effort and planning mm. as well I, I was and time as well not not just the kind of getting up in early in the morning but there's a number of your interviewees who said they went to the salon maybe four times a week or something like that which and each salon stint being you know a lengthy investment of time um which yeah i mean to me seems you know seemed astonishing as well um in chapter three i think you talk about how your interviewees often stressed that they paid for their beauty products and services themselves and predominantly on the back of their own successful careers. And in the kind of context of Euro-American pop culture and critical literature, empowered consumption and financial independence is often seen as a kind of cornerstone of post-feminist subjectivity. But you suggest that this isn't really what's at stake for your interviewees. So, So what's going on in the Nigerian or Lagosian context?
1: Yeah. Okay. So basically I argue, um, yes, yeah, so, I mean, they don't, they, I think for me, there are two strands of the argument. On the one hand, they say, you know, I pay for it myself, I'm an independent woman, that type of thing. So on the one hand, I try to say, well, firstly, in the Nigerian context, particularly in the Southern Nigerian context, um, that is normal, right? So I, I, I try to make an argument that this is not some kind of major feminist claim to say I pay for it myself because there is a kind of long-standing culture and tradition of women in Southern Nigeria. Um, having or pursuing um, independent incomes, you know. So, so, so on the one hand, this is not new, and it's not particularly noteworthy that women, and and again, this is putting aside the question of whether or not it's literally true, right? Because I have no way of ascertaining that. And uh, and again, certainly their beauty practice, you know, is very expensive. Um, so you know, there might be more to it than what they said, but that's analytically is not my concern. Um, so on the one hand, yes, they pay for it themselves. You know, there's a long tradition of working that predates. I say second wave, but probably even first wave feminism as well in the West, right? And if anything, I mean, the literature is very clear on this, that part of what, uh, let's say, British colonialism brought to Nigeria was actually, you know, sort of Victorian gender norms and so on, in which women were then sort of increasingly expected to not work, actually, whereas traditionally and culturally they did. So that's the first thing. But then the second thing, and I think this is, you know, the question that you're, you're Asking is that in in Lagos, well it's not only in Lagos, in, in sub-Saharan Africa, urban Africa, for reasons that to be honest, I don't quite understand. I mean, you know, there's some literature on it, but I feel like we we need a more kind of comprehensive study of, of this, certainly of the history of it. But you know, there's this kind of long-standing popular common sense and imaginary about the young, independent, seemingly independent, consuming woman in the city. That she is a sexually transacting figure, that she has a you know that she has a sugar daddy, that that kind of thing. That she she couldn't possibly be doing it on her own. There must be some kind of dubious, morally dubious uh, story or case or shadowy figure who's behind her bankrolling the whole thing. So that's very much a common sense in the uh, in certainly again in the Nigerian context, but elsewhere in Africa. Um it's very you know, we see it, it's very it's a very kind of common trope in, in, in fiction, in, in music, and so on and so forth. So I argue that the women, so you know, on the one hand, as I said, the women say, Yeah, I pay for it myself. On the one hand, yeah, nothing particularly remarkable about that, if you put it in a long historical view. But then I also argue that what many of them were doing, and some very explicitly, was distancing themselves from this commonsensical figure of the sexually transacting young woman. And as I said, you know, some did it really explicitly to say, I'm not that type. And I think because they're, again, because the sort of the trope would apply so readily, I think, to women like them. And I must say, even me, myself, as a young Lagosian woman, there were some of my participants who I thought, as me myself, I mean, I didn't bring this into the book, but I'm thinking, wait a minute, how do you pay for all this stuff? You know, like this stuff is expensive, all that hair, but you, you work for who kind of thing? Like, you know, the, the mathematics don't quite add up as far well as I can see. Because again, you know, as I said, that there's just that kind of common sense, right? And and even when I speak about the project, or certainly when I was doing the fieldwork, and I would tell people, what, you know, other people who weren't involved in the project what I was doing, there was very much this sort of thing, oh, that yeah, those women, those girls, you know, and there's different kinds of names and slang and so on oh they're run, they must be runs girls or oh, you know that there's always some kind of story so yeah the women so so i mean ironically enough i argue that this kind of assertion of financial independence was actually an assertion of sexual propriety actually so quite contrary to what might be a kind of post-feminist logic in the west where sexual emancipation is very much part of that that logic in the west
2: i, I thought yeah and I, that was that was so fascinating and, and made such a Made it so kind of concretely apparent the absolutely importance of kind of rejecting universalist uses of kind of different forms of feminist framings. You know that just made it made it so clear. And that that idea of yes, yeah, sexual propriety being at the centre of a lot of your interviewees' accounts um, comes through elsewhere. I think about the there's kind of a moral economy going on throughout in regard regarding their relationship with. um Sexuality, but also this is comes back to another part of the title, right? The idea of transnational uh, culture and transnational femininity, where um, some of your participants reflect on American styles and the perhaps slightly more morally dubious or questionable um, influence of, of this. I wonder if you could talk about that slightly.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, this is another sort of point of tension and contradiction, I think, Um, in what the women said and maybe in some of these some of yeah i mean so there was uh, some of the women well there are two things some of the women spoke about how oh this is how i dress in Lagos, but like when i'm in london because you know again they were very privileged and they were very mobile themselves you know the kind of nigerian women who come to london for the summer let's say or you know for a couple of weeks here and there in the year so you know there's something about yeah yeah in nigeria i know i understand this environment i don't take it too far yes, I push certain boundaries, but I also respect the environment. I respect my grandmother when she says, what is that thing you're wearing? That's not a dress. It's too short, you know, that kind of thing. But when I'm in London, then I'm much more free and I, you know, I can dress, I dress much more freely in terms of sexiness, let's say, and sexuality and, you know, the sort of expression of sexuality. So there was that. But then there were also, I think it was only really one participant, if I recall, but there was also something about There was also a certain kind of claim about, yes, this kind of the polluting influence, morally polluting influence of Western culture and, you know, causing Nigerians and Africans to kind of lose their true way. And that was a reference to, you know, like somebody, one of the women said, you know, something about Kim Kardashian, you know, that kind of influence, uh, you know, as being a kind of bad influence. But I think, I mean, for me, it's quite ironic. I, I don't know. There's something about on the one hand, they position themselves as very kind of, very global, very cosmopolitan, very knowing, and so on. But then in the next breath, they're sort of critiquing these kind of what they think or what they're suggesting are kind of morally dubious, um, more, again, the kind of polluting influence of a certain kind of Western culture, Um, which is a a very prominent kind of discourse in Africa, actually, particularly around youth culture, around popular culture, but certainly around women's dress. You know, so this idea that this this sort of concern about like launch culture coming into Africa through through popular media, in particular. Um, so yeah, it was interesting to hear the women parroting those kinds of lines at the same time as they are positioning positioning themselves as non traditional Nigerian women themselves. But I think that, uh, there was something there about again walking the line. You know, so on the one hand, yes, I'm not a traditionalist subject myself, but I'm also but I also respect the tradition. Right? I don't take it too far in the opposite direction. So, yeah, that was an interesting point as well.
2: This comes through as well, I think, in your discussion of the politics of uh, black hair and the wearing of wigs and weaves, again, in the relationship to transnational culture and the influence of um, kind of iconic figures, specifically from the US, like Beyonce and Rihanna. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that.
1: Yes, yes. Um, yeah, so I try to... For me, I, this is what I hope is one of the significant contributions of the book. You know, I try to. Well, when I when I was writing my PhD, I mean, to my surprise, so again, this was started the PhD in twenty eleven, so maybe it's shifted since then. But to my surprise, there really wasn't a lot of feminist literature and in particular black feminist literature on the weave. You know, uh, so there's a lot of there's a lot of literature and there's a lot of kind of commentary and a lot of I would say common sense, so called or putative common sense about. What it means if black women, black men as well, but let's say women in particular, if, the, if you know black women kind of altering their hair in some way or another, what the racial politics and racial kind of signification of that is. Um, but there, but so as I found, there was very little that was about the weave specifically as a kind of newer instantiation of black hair practice, as opposed to like you know chemical chemical hair straightening, which you know there's more literature on that. Um, but then also there's a kind of I would argue, I try to argue in the book that, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a binary, there's this kind of authentic, natural, um, anti-black, pro-black type frame, framework for making sense of, again, let's say black hair practice. And I mean, it also, the point also applies to other aspects of black beauty practice. So for example, skin lightening, uh, you know, skin bleaching, that kind of thing. Anyway, so what I try to, I try to, I argue that basically neither of these positions are um, good enough or nuanced enough. And that they also, I argue, they also don't really, they don't really, firstly, they don't actually really involve hearing from black subjects themselves. You know, so this typically is just a kind of normative theorizing by some theorists, typically a black theorist, but still, you know, there's, there's not that much empirical work actually around what is, it, what is it that black women, let's say, are actually doing with their hair and also how do they account for it themselves, right? Um, instead, as I said, there's just this kind of, and it's certainly in popular and popular public talk as well, this idea that, oh, black women, black black people who do stuff with their hair, who move away from the so-called natural, uh, that is a practice of kind of racial self-hatred or self-esteem or, you know, those kinds of or wanting to be white or orienting to whiteness, those kinds of things. So I try to make an argument for a more nuanced way of making sense of that kind of practice that doesn't disavow racial politics, but also makes room for Black self-making and Black subjectivity and Black desire, and also that allows that these practices are, you know, I argue, and I mean, I'm very much drawing on Shirley Tate, so it's not my original argument, but that these practices like, again, Black, like altering so-called natural hair, that, that, that those kinds of practices have sedimented into Blackness. So we need to stop thinking about them as being about whiteness, literally. Um, But in terms of the women themselves, so what I heard from the women, unsurprisingly, in the first place was very much a defense of their beauty of, well, all aspects of the beauty practice. But in terms of hair, very much a defense of it and very much a rejection of um, rejection of any kind of idea that it's about some kind of racialized self-loathing. Um, but that, but so there again, the idea of consumer choice and just fashion, just play, not politics, not that deep. I mean, I think one woman literally said, "It's not that deep. It's just hair," you know. That those, so they they very much kind of took up those positions to to defend their hair practice and again the racial politics of their hair practice. Uh, but there again, so I argue that there again that the melancholy. I mean, it was probably actually in relation to hair. The melancholy was most expressed actually so this idea that ah oh, if only yeah i could just be happy with my hair as it is so i didn't have to do all this kind of um you know whatever it is the weaves and the wigs and so on um so ultimately i make an argument so i draw on sarah ahmed i make an argument for f- thinking of let's say weaves and wigs as what i call unhappy technologies of blackness or black femininity so sarah ahmed talks about unhappy objects i think she's talking about but she says, you know, these are objects that their violent histories or something like that can't be wished away. So even just the way she phrased it very much worked for the argument that I was trying to make, which is to say, OK, on the one hand, can we allow that black women wear weaves and wigs? It's not about whiteness in so literal a sense, but at the same time, whiteness is part of the picture. So this you know, so how, is how do we sort of how do we allow it into the category of blackness, into the constituted and performative category of blackness? without reducing it to white supremacy as if that's all there is to black life or black subjectivity or black practices of self and so on. So that's the argument that I tried to make. As I said, I I hope it's a useful argument um, for moving what seems an in, a bit of an impasse, a theoretical impasse to me.
2: No, I mean, it felt really, really valuable. And also well, because it was so tightly linked to the interviews where it was very apparent that, um, that framing of a kind of uh, a internalised self hatred or anti blackness that just wasn't really on the horizon for your interview subjects mm. in the same way that perhaps it, it might be more so for diasporic, um, you know, black people in, in 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 majority white countries or in Europe or in the metropole. It's a very it seemed like a very different conversation in nigeria which which again makes sense i think
1: yeah but i would say though i think even in diasporic context i mean yes certainly of course it's different when you're a black person growing up in a white dominant society and you know the beauty norms are predominantly white and so on are literally around you but i do i mean i would hope that the argument still also kind of works elsewhere because again part of what i'm trying to part of what i'm trying to argue is that and again this is shirley tate is that there is such a thing as black beauty you know because there's often this conversation like oh white white beauty is iconic white beauty Shelley Tate literally has a she has a book chapter where entitled something like not all the women want to be white or something like that you know to say that actually hold on a minute like there are black beauty norms and standards and there, and figures they, they may be predominantly light-skinned they may have a certain kind of hair but they are within they are situated within both in terms of their own self positioning but also how others might see them, they are situated within blackness. So can we recognize that, acknowledge that, and work with that analytically and politically rather than saying, oh, it's whiteness?
2: No, no, absolutely. And I think that there's a, a, a... I haven't got the quote from you exactly written down, but you talk about, again, like the authentic or inauthentic binary is a yeah. false one. Instead, it's much better to think of two kind of overlapping tendencies towards the emphasis of the natural on one hand and artifice on the other, and both as being at work and always at work in, in black beauty norms.
1: Yes, although that quote is not from me. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> that's, that, I think that's Coburn Mercer, yes. I mean, citing there, but yes, you know, makes an argument to say, let both of these things reside. In the category of blackness, and the other thing is, and it's the same thing, but in different ways, about Africanness. It's also this thing of, and I say it, and I think here I'm drawing on Ray Chow, but this thing, who, which of us has to be authentic? Oh, sorry, that's not grammatically correct, but you see what I mean? Who has the burden of authenticity? Mm. And Ray Chow says it's the ethnic, so-called ethnic subject. It's not the white subject. White, white. The white subject is the so-called universal subject. You know who can do whatever they want without being called inauthentic. It's the rest of us who are constantly being policed by these kind of standards, both by white people, but also by our own kind of groups. Or do you see what I mean? Where, you know, Oh, are you black enough? Are you this and are you African enough? And so on and so forth. It's very tedious. I think.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Moving slightly on just to one specific interviewee who I I found is a really interesting kind of case study in and of themselves um, was a figure who, who was a journalist and worked in a, a quite a masculinist environment and had a relationship to, uh, I think, girliness, you, you, you term it, as a kind of escape. So, could, could you tell me a little bit more just about her in particular and then what you learned from her explanations about her beauty practice?
1: Yeah, so this participant was so interesting. You know, <laughs> it's funny, I often say this, but when I left Nigeria, and it's completely ridiculous in retrospect, but when I left Nigeria after i finished the fieldwork, you know i wrote in my research diary it's not post-feminism or something like that and and i mean even though i wasn't even though i say i wasn't trying to impose post-feminism the fact is i had spent two years reading reading the literature on post-feminism so at that point it was like oh my god i'm gonna need a whole different kind of body of literature like ah, this is going to be a bit of a problem and then when i did the data analysis i was like whoa like okay i'm back to post-feminism but this particular participant so i gave her the pseudonym shade who I, I think that's who you're referring to she um you know, there were so many parts in her interview where I thought, oh my God, I almost felt like she was trolling me. Not trolling, but like, I was like, has she read the literature on post-feminism? Like, it almost felt like she was citing Rosalind Gill back to me, you know, in terms of what she was saying, like so closely kind of taking out positions that have been argued in the literature. But so this woman, you know, she spoke about if I recall. So she sort of spoke about being a bit of a tomboy, perhaps by nature and then kind of coming to this sort of femininity or this kind of self-stylization a bit later in her life. Oh, no, well, I mean, she's still young, but, you know, that this was relatively new for her. But she talked about the fact that, you know, so she's a journalist. She says, you know, she's on the beat in Lagos. It's a really kind of, you know, she said you can't be kind of prim and proper or something like that. You don't want to be too ladylike or too delicate when you're in Lagos on the beat. But so she had this whole thing about this whole narrative of how when I'm not at work, when I'm done with work, when I come home from work, I just want to almost kind of plop myself down, you know, as a sort of leisure practice into the girly, the pink, the soft, the silly, the superficial, um, as a a sort of respite, let's say, from my daily life, which is operating in this very masculine sphere, in this very kind of... Difficult city, anyway, right? There was something in her account. There was something again about well, I mean, not just her. It came. Other people made this argument too, but hers was maybe the most kind of stark in terms of how she explained it. There was something about yes, I do, I do the girly and the pink and the soft and the fluffy and the princessy and so on, but don't, don't uh, underestimate me. Or you know, there's something about this idea of still having a kind of Masculinized interiority, perhaps, right? So that I'm a tough, I'm a tough woman. Don't be fooled by, but don't be fooled by this exterior. And so there was something there about about wanting to sort of reject. Well, on the one hand, reinscribe the kind of stereotypes of femininity as soft and silly and da 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 da. But to reinscribe it, but for other women, right? So like, yes, there are other women out there who do these things, who are who actually are silly and soft but I'm not one of them, right? So on the one hand, I do all these things, but for me, they're actually a source of power and a source of recharging, as it were, right? So I'm, so yeah, I think the final chapter of the book, you know, I try to, it's something about this sort of new kind of girly, right? So I'm not the old traditional, again, silly, frivolous girly girl. I'm the new one, which is the girl power, girly girl, who's, yes, I do, I have these, I take on these signifiers of femininity, but they mean something different, And I deployed them in different ways. The problem with that, of course, is that that's not how the world... (laughs) Well, I mean, there are many problems with that, but one of them is that the world doesn't necessarily agree with that or in terms of how one gets read, right, and stereotyped and so on. Um, But so, yeah, as I said, a lot of women may... And, you know, there was another woman who said... um, There was another woman who said... (laughs) I mean, you know, it's this thing of women. I mean, we all do it. Basically, we're inscribing these actually very sexist stereotypes. So she sort of said, you know, I see these girls in the nail salon and, you know, I might chat with them. You know, there's something about, yeah, they're silly and they're superficial. Like we do the same beauty practice. So we, we encounter each other, but we are different on the inside. You know, so I have depth. I have substance. I'm serious. I like to talk about politics. I like to drink beer. She actually said this. She said, you know, I'm more likely to be friends with their boyfriends than with them so it's something again about aligning with masculinity even while on the outside appearing to be very feminine in terms of dress and beauty
2: yeah and i, I suppose that that chapter in particular where you know they, they again kind of invoke i think the specs almost of the airhead you know of, of someone who's hyper feminine and, and all surface and no interior um it um yeah, uh, speaks to throughout the whole book and all, all of the interviews, the kind of the specter and the fear of misrecognition, um, which I think is, is one of the really strong themes that comes through. And finally. So despite the book kind of offering quite a stinging critique of the shortcomings of post-feminism um Uh, you suggest that kind of alongside other feminisms like popular feminism in Sarah Banay-Wise's terms or neoliberal feminism then it might offer a ground for a new or renewed feminisms I found this really fascinating so I wondered if you could expand on that a bit yeah
1: okay so well yeah so two things one is that and again I feel like I say that I've said this probably every time I've spoken about the book there was something for me in writing the book particularly because it started my PhD you know it was a 10 it was a nine year when I started the PhD on when the book was published it was nine years and so I did very much feel even at the point when I was finishing the PhD much less five years later when I was finishing the book or the book was being published I felt like it's almost like the style and the type of subject was almost kind of passe you know that was no, no longer in fashion but it felt like there'd been a cultural shift in the years that I'd been working on this project anyway right which is where the literature and the kind of the concepts of you know popular feminism and neoliberal feminism you know that there were these kind of newer concepts that were trying to make sense of what were and are arguably kind of newer form, newer formations and newer types of subjects than, than the post-feminist subject that I was working on or the concept that I was working with. So there was something, so I think I was trying to, in the end, at the end of the book, trying to make an argument, trying to on the one hand recognize that there's been a cultural shift anyway. You know, I do think it'd be interesting to go back to Nigeria, so almost 10 years later to interview either literally the same women or women, and you know, similarly positioned women, to see what kinds of positions they take up relative to feminism. I suspect they'll be different from what I heard ten years ago. That you know, there's something about feminism, feminine, something about politics, gender politics, but even feminism—the word, the brand—if you want to call it that—having a new visibility and currency and popularity globally, arguably, um, including in Nigeria. So I think there's something that's shifted there. So I was trying to make a point about that, but then also to say part of, but, but the bigger argument, and this goes back, I guess, to the argument I tried to make about post-feminism as being cruel. And I mean, I also argue that post-feminism is a performative that fails, that, you know, that the, again, that the conditions, the conditions for women to be post the need for feminism have not arrived because women are not post the need for feminism, right? So there's some, so, so I argue that the the disappointment and the failure and the lie, I actually end up calling it a lie, of post feminism potentially becomes grounds for renewed feminisms because it simply doesn't work, it simply doesn't do what it says. Um, I mean, I don't think that's it by itself is enough for for feminism to to re-emerge, as it were, but the, but it's almost a you know, this thing that again, this promise to women, hey, you're, hey, you're good, you can be happy, you can have it. Oh, oh shit, no, you can't. oops. There's sexism, there's violence, there's this, there's that. There's you not getting the promotion at work or whatever, right? Or there's you getting married and suddenly things have changed in terms of what people expect of you or whatever. You're not free as you thought you were. Um, so, you know, my argument is that, again, that there's, that the failure, the, the inevitable failure of post-feminism to do what it says or what it promises potentially maybe part of the grounds for a renewal. And just to say, actually, so uh, I can't remember. Yeah, I think this was around the time I was finishing the book. Um, there's an article in, I think it's in Feminist Theory, it's a conversation piece between Rosalind Gill, Sarah Benay weiser and Catherine Rottenberg talking about their respective concepts that they work with, post-feminism, neoliberal feminism, popular feminism. And there's a line by Catherine Rottenberg where she says something like, so Catherine Rottenberg wrote about or has written about neoliberal feminism. And she sort of said that she was sort of thinking to herself, like, where where does this, how come neoliberal feminism when post-feminism was so successful or something like that? And so when I read that, I mean, I folded into the book and I also presented it at a paper in response to Catherine, but where I said, you know, there's something about part of my argument is that post-feminism wasn't uh, successful actually. Right. And I think there's something there about post-feminism. I think that there's a distinction that's necessary between something like post-feminism on the screen, you know, so like sex and the city or whatever, tv show we might think of as a post-feminist text where everything on the whole works out people are happy they're fabulous and so on you know those are kind of fictive representations and then what it means for women in the flesh to try to embody these kinds of happy celebratory consumerist subject positions that again they, they don't work they don't they they require so much work, as we've already said, so much labor, so much expense, and so on and so forth. So they're not even easy to inhabit, but they also just don't do what they say. Like feeling great about oneself because one is wearing a wig and looking fabulous. I'm not against that, killjoy though I am. But like that will only take you so far, you know. That, that cannot substitute for feminist politics, is my argument.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think the fact that that failure seems, uh, germinal or seems to be emerging for your interview subjects, even in their position of absolute, you know, elite privilege, it makes it all all the the more striking, I suppose. Um, And and finally, what are you working on now?
1: Yes. um, So I'm actually very excited because I'm about to go on research leave. So I'm actually going to Nigeria for six months um, to begin field work for what will hopefully be my next book project. Um, So basically it's it's very much continuing from this first project. I'm planning on looking at what appears to be, I say appears because well, I mean to me, because I'm not on the ground. I'm just seeing it on social media, but basically there's, there's a new, or well, again, it looks new to me, it may not actually be new, but a new kind of um, business and life coaching scene in Nigeria, very female, female led. And female centered in terms of the audience, in terms of the messages, and so on, still very much continuing in this kind of glamorized, you know, the aesthetics of it are, you know, very much in line with the aesthetics of, you know, my earlier, the the women in my earlier projects. It's still this very kind of glam, glam and glamorized femininity in terms of looks. Um, Still about women's empowerment, you know, so sort of like the kind of preaching and teaching of a certain kind of women's empowerment. so it's this scene I'm going to study, I'm hoping to study this scene. Part of what I'm particularly interested in, as far as I can see it in media representation so far from a distance, is that there's a there's an entanglement of evangelical Christianity with it. So I'm very interested in that. So I'm basically, so I mean, I, in my mind so far, the project is really about the entanglement of neoliberal feminism, so this kind of business feminism, still this kind of go-getting feminism with evangelical christian faith and practice and belief and so on um so i'm going to lagos hopefully i'm gonna you know so these coaches that i'm looking at you know they have they hold like conferences and workshops and da 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 so i'm hoping to attend some of those kinds of things as well as to do interviews with both the coaches and some of the some of their followers or audience members to understand what it's all about
2: that sounds absolutely fascinating i really look forward to, to reading it um Well, thanks so much for your time. uh, And yeah, thanks for coming on the show.
1: Thank you so much for your questions. I feel like you read the book so closely. Thank you.